Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Remembering the, the background of this letter to Timothy is going to help us to contextualize the passage that we're going to read this morning. We noted last week that Timothy was sent to Ephesus in order to combat the false teaching, to appoint elders, pastors, and to teach, according to chapter 3, verse 15, how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so those three things, right? combat false teaching, appoint elders, and the right behavior in the church are what Paul's been addressing in this letter. The first chapter, Paul gives some details about how to deal with the false teachers. Then, beginning in chapter 2, he begins with behavior of church folks leading up to chapter 3 where he gives qualifications of pastors, elders. And kind of sandwiched in between those, relating to both behavior in the church and qualifications for leadership, Paul addresses the role of women within the church in a passage that has proved to be, let's just say, fairly controversial over the years. I thought we would deal with it this morning, not because there is a particular issue here, but because our goal is to be looking at this church at Ephesus and the issues within the church, and this addresses one. And this has become also an issue of debate among modern Christianity as a whole. So, 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 9 through the end of the chapter. It says, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Earlier this year, the Southern Baptist Convention voted to, they use the term disfellowship, Saddleback Church of Lake Forest, California, essentially removing that church from the membership in the Southern Baptist Convention. It probably would not have been noteworthy if not for two factors. First off, that church was established and pastored by Rick Warren, the fairly well-known author of The Purpose Driven Life. Second, the cause for removing that church was that it had ordained women and put them on the church staff in pastoral and preaching roles. While you would think that a vote, which passed with about a 90% majority, was a clear statement on the issue. It's actually far from over. After the vote to remove Saddleback Church for its stance on women pastors, immediately four former presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention stood up together 
to request a committee to, quote, study the issue and determine what the Southern Baptist Convention should do in the future. And that resolution also passed. So in other words, the Southern Baptist Convention at this moment restricts women from pastoral leadership, but has also decided to send the issue to committee for review. And if Rick Warren is right in what he said, that there are currently about 2,000 Southern Baptist churches with women on pastoral staff, then it seems the times they are a-changing, right? Culture, and even Christian culture, would tell us that restricting women from church leadership roles is antiquated. But this is not a topic for culture, since true Christianity has always been countercultural. And it's not an issue for committee, right? We're not going to be able to determine truth by trying to build a consensus. The only authority for this question and for every question is what does the Bible say? In our text, the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy about the role of women within the church. And when we embrace the spirit-intended meaning of the text in context, it's going to challenge us. Whatever your position when you came in this morning, the text presents a challenge. If you're hoping to read this, and as I remember one preacher shockingly saying that Paul is telling women to sit down, cover up, and shut up, and this passage is not going to say what it is you hope that it's going to say. But if you're hoping this passage is going to say, you know, expecting women to be silent and submissive is a cultural blunder and it's an offense to our tender sensibilities, it just doesn't apply to us anymore, then it's also not going to say what you hope it's going to say. I don't think that anyone is going to walk away this morning angry. Maybe you will, but... Let me say, if in the course of the message I present some concept other than what the Bible clearly teaches, then by all means you should reject it as, well, that's just thus saith Jason. There's no authority to that whatsoever. The word is all we have to go by. But if in the course of the message you hear something that's clearly from the word that you don't want to hear, please remember, the word is all we have to go by. And the last disclaimer is don't make early assumptions about who's likely to be surprised by what the word says. In other words, don't sit there saying, well, I sure hope so-and-so is listening to this. You just worry about what this has to say to you. I really think the meaning of the text is as simple as this. Women who want to glorify God in the church will not do it in ways designed to draw attention to themselves instead of God. So as we dig into this, I would encourage you to give a glance back up at verses 1 through 8 in chapter 2 for a moment. The calling here in context is for all people to live, according to verse 2, quiet, peaceable, prayer-filled lives. And we'll talk about verse 2 again in a moment, or at least a part of it. Making sure that those prayers are done, according to the the end of verse 8, in holiness without anger or hostility. Now we need to know that that's what he's saying in the first eight verses because Paul begins our text with a comparative statement, right? In like manner also. 
that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becomes women professing godliness with good works. So in like manner or in a similar way, Paul wants, he says, women to dress in modest clothing. Now, when we think about modest, what we think of the word modest nowadays is we usually apply that to things like, well, you know, no bikinis, right? No, no high-cut bottoms, no low-cut tops. And, and just for the record, that is a good idea. Y'all, when, you're, when your brothers come to worship, you want their attention to be on what God's Word has to show them, not what, on you, what you have to show them. But in fairness, that's not what the word modest means here. It simply means well-arranged, or respectful, or appropriate. Now, the common word for modesty, as we think of modesty, is actually in the text. In the King James Version, this is one of those places where, you know, 400-year-old words sort of get us. It's this word translated shamefacedness, which just sounds so nice. You need to be ashamed of your face. Well, no, you don't need to be ashamed of your face. Right, I, I think the, the ESV, the English Standard Version, does a really good job on these verses. Let me read verses 9 and 10 to you from the ESV. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now here's what I find interesting about Paul's assertion concerning modest apparel. By the words in verses 9 and 10, he is not that concerned with how much of yourself you're showing. He's mostly concerned with how much you're trying to show off. Now there's far more details here about the cost of clothing than the areas that the clothing covers. Now, obviously, he does address modesty. This is not an argument for immodesty in the sense that we we think of it. It's not right to come to church dressed in a way that might be considered seductive. But more importantly, Paul's saying it's wrong to come to church in any way that is designed to attract attention to yourself. Does verse 9 teach us that it's a... You know, when you look at verse 9... You know, does it teach us that it's a sin to have braided hair or jewelry or nice clothes? No. In fact, most of the women in first century wore their hair in braids pulled back. Paul's concern is about the ostentatious or flashy presentation of women who come into the assembly with the intention of being seen. It was common in the first century world for wealthy women to braid gold into their hair to show off how wealthy they were. And this is a concern. So he ends that verse by talking about costly array or expensive clothes. Y'all, even, even in our nearby communities, we have some folks who say it is a sin to have any kind of jewelry because that's not functional. That's just showing off. 
And then those same people will buy some of the most gaudy watches you've ever seen in your life and say, well, that's okay. It's a watch. It's functional. You know, Paul said for the wealthier women of Ephesus to show off their wealth, to come within the assembly with the intention to show off their wealth or attract attention to themselves in any way, whether it would be men or women doing that, was improper for worship service. I <clears throat> wish we could get this into our minds a little bit better. The modesty called for in Scripture is more than just making sure you've got enough skin covered. For sure, it includes that, but there's no passage that gives a, a specific instruction on you know, how much has to be covered for it to be modest. And it, it's funny because I, I know a church who's got their statement of faith online and in their statement of faith they talk about modest apparel and that's not enough. They include a chart with a little stick figure with arrows pointing at exactly what parts need to be covered. Like, can't we just say dress appropriately? Because this is what Paul says. Paul's idea of modesty is less about what's showing and more about showing off. If a church would obey Paul's standard of modesty, then James wouldn't need to come along later and tell us how to be careful in watching ourselves when we need to handle how a well-dressed rich person walks into the assembly and how we treat them compared to a rag-covered poor folk who, who comes into the assembly. In, in, a sense, in essence, how you look and why you look how you look are matters of concern to God. Now, as is his custom, Paul doesn't simply give a restriction. He provides guidance. He doesn't stop at saying, don't do that, but he also adds, do this instead. So catch the contrast. It's important as we go through the text that you catch how Paul's making contrasts here. In verse 10, he says, the clothing of the church's women ought to be good works. The, that's proper, he says, for women who profess godliness. The message is pretty simple, and although it's much needed in our day. The beauty of women is based on behavior more than looks. That hasn't really changed, by the way. You know, nowadays, young ladies will discover if they attract a guy through his eyes, he is interested in them for the wrong reason. And young men will find the fact that a girl looks pretty will never make up for the fact of how ugly she acts, right? This is just some useful, common sense teaching. The role of women in the Lord's church is not to be seeking attention. Just that, that kind of thing is just telling people, look at me, when really they ought to come to the assembly looking at God. Now, he transitions into another argument. Worse than saying, look at me, when people ought to be looking at God, is if we were to tell people, listen to me, when they ought to be listening to God. And so Paul moves from directing these women, saying they, sh they shouldn't be searching for attention, to say they shouldn't be striving for authority. Verses 11 and 12. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Before diving into these verses, let me first say the original audience, if you could have 
put yourself into the church at Ephesus and, you know, Timothy receives this personal letter from Paul and he shares it with the church, they would have heard this much differently than we do today. We get caught up in the words silence and subjection, but that's not really the shocking part of this, these verses for the original audience. Yes, there is a God-given order, and Paul isn't going to promote gender chaos, but the most shocking statements made in our text in the mind of first century Christians would have been the first four words of verse 11. Let the woman learn. Right? Despite going on to make qualifications about how women should behave as they learn, those first four words were entirely countercultural to the first century. Those would have been thought bombs to first century Christians. This elevated women far beyond the level of everyday society around them. Today, the Apostle Paul gets bashed for being anti-women. And I assure you, the first century readers of this letter would have laughed at that kind of criticism. I mean, this is the guy who says that women ought to be afforded every opportunity in Christian education. This is the man who wrote to the churches in Galatia and said that there was neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. He argues for equality in the eyes of God. He's tearing down walls even as at the same time he's upholding God's order for the family and God's order for the church. Now I know the words that get our attention, right? Silence and subjection. So let's talk about these for just a moment. I come from a background that says silent means silent. Sounds good. I mean, it's true in a sense. By that, it means an absolute restriction on women voicing anything in the church. I am convinced that is not what Paul's saying, but stick with me so you understand what Paul is saying. The word silent here that he uses in verses 11 and verse 12, actually he uses earlier in the chapter. I said earlier, we'd come back to verse 2 for something. Look at verse 2 for a second. Actually, we'll just start at verse 1. I exhort therefore that first of all, supplication, prayers, intercession, and giving thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. The same root word in Greek, hesukios, is used up in verse 2, but when you look at verse 2, it's actually not the word that you're going to assume that it is. It's actually not the word quiet, which is what we would assume. It's the word peaceable there, is the same root word that Paul's using for silent later. Now we understand in verse 2, Paul is not saying that all Christians should pray for their governmental leaders so that we can live an absolutely mute life as we're carrying out some monastic vow of silence course not he's saying we make those prayers so that we can live peaceable tranquil well-behaved well-ordered lives then he adds down there in verses 11 and 12 
In verse 11, in addition to silence, he adds, with all subjection. You realize the command to allow women to learn would have been so countercultural that Paul has to include a statement here, essentially saying, listen, I'm not, I'm not upsetting the apple cart here. I've not forgotten gender roles, which call for wives to be under authority. So let them learn. Let them learn in a peaceful and well-ordered way while remaining in subjection. Again, Paul is teaching by contrast. Verse 11, so you need to understand, verse 11 is very positive, right? Women are afforded the opportunity to learn. And then the contrast, verse 12, but, right? He gives this negative contrast so that Timothy can teach the church at Ephesus how to afford women that opportunity to learn without it getting out of hand. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over a man, but to be in silence. So in verse 12, Paul clearly and carefully defines what he means in verse 11. In verse 11, women learn quietly in subjection. That word subjection just means to line up under, to recognize they're under authority. The Bible teaches there is absolute equality between men and women, between male and female. Neither is more valuable or less valuable in the eyes of God. Yet within that equality, there are specific roles that each is called to fulfill. And in this case, women in church are to be earnest learners and no one is to prohibit them from learning. And while learning in the assembly, women are also not to teach or to assume roles of authority. Y'all, that's all that Paul's saying here. I've honestly come to believe that the folks who insist, no, silent means absolutely silent, are just doing that because that's the, that's an easy and simple way to try to apply the passage. But just to be honest enough to say, no, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying not to have women as teachers of men or assuming roles of authority in the church. They think, well, that opens up this big can of worms because it's hard to know where the line gets drawn. And it's easier to just draw a a clear line. They're to sit there and be silent. But in reality, it doesn't do that. If silent means complete silence, then women are not allowed to sing in church. Women are not allowed to tell their children to behave in church. Furthermore, what does the word church mean when we're talking about this in the context of church? We know that it doesn't mean a church building. It doesn't mean that, you know, hour-long worship service. It means assembly. So what about when we go downstairs and we assemble and meet for lunch? Do we have to have absolute silence from women there or you know, how silly are we going to get with this? When we, when we assemble this fall for our service at the square, do y'all want to be allowed to get run over by a car because a woman wasn't able to voice that there was a car coming? You know, there, there has to be some kind of common sense application to this that makes sense of the text. That, that's not trying to avoid what Paul's teaching. It's trying to embrace the text. The description Paul gives is that women are to learn 
but not to teach. Women are to participate, but not to assume roles of leadership. This is absolutely the context here. We understand that Paul is about to, in chapter 3, and remember, Paul didn't write this with chapter divisions. It flows directly together. He is about to, in chapter 3, go into the qualifications for church leaders, right? If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. Listen, Paul's not saying this because he doesn't think women are smart enough to teach. And he's not saying this because he doesn't think women are able to teach. He knows better. And think about Paul's experience so far. He, he knows this married couple, Priscilla and Aquila, both took a man named Apollos in and in Acts chapter 18 taught him, but they did not do it within the assembly. Right? He writes to his friend Titus in Titus 2 verses 3 and 4 and commands the older women to teach the younger women, but that's not assuming a leadership role over men in the church. And in Romans 16, he commends a woman named Phoebe and calls her a servant of the church at Chantria, but that doesn't mean she had a leadership role. And even to Timothy, in his second letter to Timothy, he's going to lovingly remind Timothy about his own mother Eunice and grandmother Lois and how much those two taught him in the Lord. This has nothing to do with ability. It has nothing to do with value. It has everything to do with God's design. I think it's important that even if the world around us says that that's wrong, think, listen, I, I think the Apostle Paul understood that someday somebody would think he's got this wrong. You know, I, I don't think that Timothy or the church at Ephesus would have struggled with this quite the same way we do, but Paul seems to know, look, somewhere down the road, there is a potential complaint, and it's the complaint that we hear today. The complaint we hear today is, well, Paul was writing this to his culture in his time, but it doesn't make sense for our culture and our time. And to be sure, there are some things in Scripture that are cultural. Now, for example... We didn't all greet each other with a holy kiss when we came in the church today, right? But frankly, Paul doesn't care that much about culture. Remember, he's already been countercultural in verse 11 with the let the woman learn. So it's not reasonable to, to think that, you know, he's got that countercultural attitude in verse 11, but then he gets to verse 12, Paul is suddenly just submitting to culture because that's what the culture around him says, is women shouldn't teach. Even more clearly, Paul explains his message using two arguments. He, he addresses those potential objections by using two arguments. One is from creation, and the other is from immediately after creation in the fall. And I don't think you can find two events that transcend culture more than creation and the fall. His first argument's from creation, verse 13. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. God made Adam first. He made Eve second as a helper suitable for Adam. There is a God-designed pattern for masculinity and femininity. 
And I want to say, it's been there since day one, but the reality is it's been there since day six because that's when Adam and Eve were created, right? It's, it's Genesis chapter one, though. The problem is those God-designed roles didn't last very long before they were challenged. They got destroyed in the fall of mankind in Genesis 3. Satan tempts Eve and she disobeys God's command and took the fruit to Adam and led him to disobey God's command. And that's Paul's second appeal. It's to what happened in the fall in verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgression. By the way, When we go back, and I'm not going to take you back to Genesis 3 right now, but what were the consequences to that sin that they committed? Not usually much for, you know, trying to chase rabbits, but just think this one through, because this one's going to run us right back to the text here. In Genesis 3, verse 16 God says to the woman, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In thy sorrow you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. So there were two consequences there to sin, specifically for Eve. The first one's pretty clear. Childbearing was going to be difficult. It's going to be a sorrowful and painful process. It seems the curse included a higher frequency of fertility and the ability to conceive and the great pain involved in the delivering and the raising of children. But the second consequence, if God created Eve in this state of perfection and in the Garden of Eden she's content and she's happy in her role being a help meet or a help fit suitable for Adam, Sin and the fall destroyed that. God said the second part of the curse is your desire shall be to your husband and he shall rule over you. God told Eve as a consequence of sin, her role under the authority of Adam is no longer going to be something that's you know, a, a content and, and happy proposition. It's going to be difficult and challenging. And you know, I, I think 6,000 years worth of husbands and wives will agree it's downright frustrating at times. Why is Paul saying women should learn but not teach and assume leadership roles? It's not because of culture. It's not because, well, just do it because that's the way they do things at Ephesus. It's because of creation and because of the fall. It's, it's God's design and it, and it recognizes a consequence of sin. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we're restored to the relationship we have with God prior to the fall. And part of that relationship is to display God's design in our gender roles. Jesus, Jesus even restores that childbearing relationship in verse 15 of our text, notwithstanding She'll be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. By the way, Paul is not saying that you'll be saved by having children. There is a whole world full of people having children out there who are not becoming more righteous in the process. If that's what Paul thought, he never would have said when he wrote to the Corinthians that he would encourage some to embrace the the gift of singleness, he would have said, get married and have kids as quickly as possible. You know, your eternal life depends on it. 
Nobody's being saved by the birth of a child. Salvation only comes through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What he is saying is that through Jesus and his defeat of sin, even that part of the fall's curse becomes a blessing as you have children and you raise them in righteousness. And maintaining that traditional God-designed role gives you plenty of opportunity for Christian women to display faith and love and serious holiness. And so, what, what does this passage teach us? I think we make it a little more complicated than necessary. As we continue in this series on the church at Ephesus, we can learn some things about that church here. Apparently, some women in the church at Ephesus were trying to draw attention to themselves by the way they dressed. Others were struggling with their role as women because they thought it conflicted with their desire to learn more and know more about God. Or I think some of those false teachers came along and told them that, you know, that learning stuff, that's not your place. But others were taking their newfound equality in Christ and using it as a platform to try to go above that and uh, assume leadership roles. So Paul is simply saying, women, don't try to attract attention to yourselves by your appearance. Let your good works in the name of the Lord Jesus be the source of your appeal. Otherwise, you're trying to get people to look at you instead of looking at him. He's also saying to the women, come and, and join in, worship, learn the riches of God's word. You get to learn. Nobody gets to stop you. But as you learn, remember that blessing is a restoration of what was lost through sin. Jesus has brought us back to God's original design for humanity. So you have a chance to do what Eve should have done, which is enjoy this perfect communion with God through a quiet spirit and embrace your God-given role as a complementary helper. Now, how do we put that into practice? That's the hard part. Putting it into practice is so difficult, that's where we end up with, well, silent means silent, because that's an easy line to draw. We desperately want to find hard and fast rules to draw a clear line, but that's not really what Paul's given us. As with many issues, this is a heart issue. Now, there are some clear lines we can draw. Can, can women preach in the church? No. You know, that's not a role that Paul allows. Can women sing in church? They better, I hope so, because most of you men don't do it. Which, can I just say, in all seriousness, is often the problem. I think it is safe to say, in the vast majority of times where you see women assuming some leadership role in the church, it's because there was a vacuum or a void into which no man would act like a man and step in and do what the Lord calls us to do. I am willing beyond that, to hear your questions about specifics, right? Well, what do you think about this situation? Ask me. Not now. Be quiet. Kidding. Kidding. 
Seriously, if you want to, you know, catch me after church or, or get a question to me somehow, I will, I will stumble all over trying to answer it as biblically as I can. But we cannot go the direction that the world today is going. We can't go the way of, you know, Saddleback Church or what I fear the Southern Baptist Convention is going to do as a whole in the next few years. The essence of the text is saying that women who want to glorify God will do it in ways designed to draw attention to him and not attention to themselves. 